you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. This is episode number 217. I'm Susan Soares, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's garden and cannabis's favorite grandma aka nanogram if you're listening to the podcast or watching on the youtube channel the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m pacific standard time on clubhouse spark it up with us and over 26,000 state of cannabis news hour members if you want to be an audience participant that's one of the unique things about this show not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about the media's war on cannabis, San Diego to lower some taxes, cannabis and the United States Postal Service, the new FDA commissioner, apathetic officers in the Bay Area, a MedMen lawsuit update, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google, Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Uh, Thank you so much for the lovely introduction. Happy hump day, everybody. My headline today comes out of San Diego, out of the Union Tribune, where San Diego lowers some cannabis taxes to encourage more local production. And I can't say that this is uh, surprising to me at all, uh, because San Diego actually did have one of the highest cannabis taxes in the state um, as a, on a local level. And so this is something I'm really excited to say that it looks like they're following in Long Beach's uh, footsteps on realizing that lowering that tax might actually help increase revenue. Uh, so San Diego County City, city Council uh, voted on Tuesday to approve a reduction in some city cannabis taxes to encourage the opening of more indoor cannabis farms and factories that make cannabis edibles. The council voted six to three 
to shrink the tax rate on production facilities from 8% to 2%. You heard that right, ladies and gentlemen. They had an 8% tax on gross revenue. Uh, San Diego's two dozen dispensaries will continue to pay that 8% rate, which I absolutely think needs to be addressed and adjusted. Supporters uh, say San Diego's tax rate on cannabis production facilities, which is among the highest in the state, is discouraging those businesses from opening in the city. Only 19 of the 40 city-approved production facilities have opened, creating a gap in the local supply chain that forces some local dispensaries to truck their cannabis into San Diego from elsewhere. Supporters said that the drawbacks have fewer production facilities, including fewer local cannabis jobs and great, greater opportunity for the local or for the cannabis illicit market to thrive. We owe it to our local businesses and owners of these operating legal businesses to have a chance to compete in their right here in their city. Council member Raul Campillo said. Critics are of lowering the cannabis taxes said that San Diego's overall tax revenue, which has been affected by the pandemic because the city relies so much on tourism, can't afford to be reduced in any way. They also complain that San Diego lacks the cannabis equity program to help low-income people and minorities gain access to a lucrative industry that was relatively with relatively high upfront costs. Um, I'm having a major issue with reducing the tax rate for an industry that we have not even opened up yet, Councilmember Monica Montgomery Strap said. Uh, city officials said San Diego's cannabis equity program is scheduled to be ready for operation at some point this year. But Councilmember Joe LaCava proposed delaying the date for the cannabis tax reduction from May to January of 2023. So that equity program will be in place that the proposed amendment didn't receive enough support. Council President Sean L. Revio uh, proposed adding a three-year sunset clause, which would make it easy for the city to adjust the tax back upward if revenues fall dramatically. That also did not receive enough support. Supporters of lowering the tax in the city says the revenue could increase despite the lower rate because so many cannabis businesses would begin to actually operate and then be able to pay their city tax. But an analysis of the city's independent budget analysis estimated that San Diego will lose between $2 million and $4 million over the next five years by lowering the cannabis taxes. An analysis by the city treasurer estimated a smaller loss in revenue. Gina Austin, the leading attorney for the region's cannabis industry, said that the IBA analysis was based on flawed assumption that approval unopened cannabis production facilities will eventually open without the tax cut. That's absolutely just not true, said Austin, contending that her clients would choose instead to open in cities with lower tax rates. Maybe like Long Beach, come on over, we've got some opportunities here. Councilmember Marnie Von Welpert said that she also is concerned about lowering the tax rate on businesses that have been inconsistent about paying their taxes to begin with. Uh, Von Walpert noted that the city's treasurer has struggled to collect uh, owed taxes from some of the cannabis businesses, but she ended up voting in favor of the lower rate anyways. The San Diego tax rate was approved by the uh, voters in Measure N in 2016. The ballot measure included a tax rate, increasing the tax rate from 5% to 8% in 2019, but it also gave council discretion to move it anywhere between zero and Hey, wait for this, ladies and gentlemen, 15%. In a separate vote, the council approved a new annual fee of $20,000 for all San Diego cannabis businesses to cover the oversight and regulation by the city's business division. The new fee was approved 7 to 2, and LaCava, the council member, is only one voting no. So I'm pretty excited to see a lower tax rate anywhere in cannabis at this point, but I have to be quite honest, it's not enough. The retail needs to be adjusted as well. 8% is a ridiculous addition tax on top of the already existing cultivation tax, excise tax, um, the sales tax, and now we're going to say an additional 8% at a local cannabis tax as well. Absolutely ridiculous, San Diego. You need to get adjusted on this. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. They bullshitting.
yeah, it's pretty shitty. I can't even imagine. Uh, you just got a message um, uh, from uh, Nick Bradley. Uh, San Jose voted to expand their program from 16 retail to 37 and five delivery, but kept the 10% tax on gross sales for retail in San Jose. Voted on last night. I feel I feel so bad for the people down in San Diego. I love San Diego. I love the people down there. I love the industry down there, uh, the legacy folks. And I hope they do get this ironed out, but, you know, the clock's ticking. They're going to lose out on a lot of money. Long Beach did such a huge service by lowering the taxes um, in, in those businesses. Uh, we, you know, there was a 6% gross revenue tax on distribution and manufacturing here as well. And that was lowered from 6% to 1%. And it really opened up a lot of opportunity here. And a lot more businesses have found their homes here in Long Beach. Absolutely. I remember when that shit happened. I was like, man, all kinds of businesses are going to be moving across the Vincent Thomas Bridge. No other comments? Okay, let's keep moving. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads and is the patriarch of dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? So mine's coming out of uh, Nevada TV station, KQRE. No limit. Recreational cannabis licenses getting approval. New Orleans native Percy Robert Miller Sr. had a hard time selling his music in his native New Orleans, so he took initiative. He loaded up the trunk with mixtapes and headed west. It wasn't long before Master P became an absolute legend by doing things his way. Turning his small independent hip-hop label into a household name everybody wanted to jump on board with. He knew heading west, his success would end up just like the number of cannabis licenses allowed to be issued in New Mexico. No limit. According to Victor Reyes, Albuquerque Deputy Superintendent of the Regulation and Licensing Department, there's no limit to the amount of licenses that can be issued as long as they're able to meet the law in the Cannabis Regulation Act and rules and requirements set forth by the division and department. The Cannabis Control Division, or CCD, Receive the first retail applications on Monday, December 6, 2021. Entrepreneurs can open doors on April 1st with an approved license. No limit means Cannabis Control Division can approve countless retail license, uh, licenses, and New Mexicans could theoretically see pot shops on every other street statewide. KRQE plotted every address in Albuquerque where retail licenses uh, license applicants are hoping to open, and so far there's more than 80. While many see this as a positive, not everybody's on board. CRA gives every local government discretion to choose where shops can be located. In Albuquerque, adult use can, cannot be sold within 30, 300 feet of a school or daycare, and shops have to be 600 feet apart from each other. Sticking to his Wild West roots, City Councilor Isaac Benton introduced a resolution to council clarifying that the first applicant gets dibs. Deputy Superintendent Reyes said his staff is helping each prospective business owner navigate extensive applications, hosting monthly webinars, and making themselves available for any and all questions to help smooth out the process. But it's overwhelming his office. And as of February 11th, the CCD received 404 applications for the six types of licenses covering everything from seed to sale. Specific to retail, 138 have applied with 20 approved. Uh, Reyes said that they're expecting many more, and the demand has his nine-person staff frequently working overtime. He's open to uh, 
to more than double his, his staff, uh, or as he said, uh, the process of reviewing licenses is expected to slow down. So some of the applicants awaiting approval may not even be opening their doors to sell recreational uh, cannabis on April 1st. Uh, so what do y'all think? Will having no restrictions on the number of licenses granted uh, in the land of enchantment end up becoming the economic boom they've been hoping for? Or will local regulators soon fall back, fall out of tune, and um, say to all these applicants, This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad in the Seattle streets today, representing for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear what y'all guys say about this one. Shout out to New Mexico. No limits for show. I'm a no limit soldier, for sure. I thought I told you. Open market all the way. Um, We've got Jay Cannabis Herrera up from the audience. Uh, Would you like to weigh in on Rico's headline? Yeah, thank you so much, Rico, for reporting on this. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, I'm I'm thinking that there's going to be more demand and there is going to be supply. So a lot of people are already talking about New Mexico running out of cannabis. Not very many people have applied for the applications, as you said, Rico. And I think that New Mexico is going to approve as many people as they can if they cross their T's and dot their I's because New Mexico really needs the money. People are coming into New Mexico, moving into New Mexico at a very slow rate, but they are coming in. So, yeah, I think it's positive for the state. It's going to be positive for my little community in Cuba, New Mexico, which is an, outside, an hour outside of Albuquerque. So, yeah, exciting times. Thanks, Rico. Absolutely. And good luck with everything down there, man. I want to come out there and, and, and try out some new Mexican weed. Yeah. We- are, they expecting cannabis to, are they expecting cannabis to be the new Breaking Bad of New Mexico? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Okay, so my mom has actually met uh, those guys that play in that show and i would love to come have you come out jason in april april 20th i'd love to see if you think my weed is boof rico you're invited everybody here is invited and thanks I think we can, I think all we right we've got a, sam we need to get winnebago and take a road trip down there what do you say susan let's do it let's let sam uh have a word and then after that we've got ls love up from the audience Hello. I was just uh, I was just commenting that I live in a uh, growing community on Vancouver Island, um, and uh, the cannabis stores here have integrated seamlessly into the greater retail market. People who see it as the end of the world really don't really know what they're talking about. I, I live in a in a cannabis retail space that is fully legal and. It, it makes everybody's lives so much easier, and it's good for everybody. It's revitalizing areas that weren't that as well off beforehand, and it's, uh, it's a really good thing. Thank you for having me on here. Awesome. I bet you there's more restaurants. Uh, LS Love, did you want to weigh in? Absolutely, yes. Um, I'm here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I've been an advocate here for a long time. On the downside, we're going to have a big bottleneck here where we don't have enough quality or enough analytical testing at all. And there's going to be all this new product that won't be uh, able to be tested fast enough, and there will not be enough uh, medicine for medical users and users and, uh, and recreational users as well. So uh, we have a big problem here with testing. 
Well, thank you, everybody, for all your comments on that. Enrico, super interesting headline. Definitely, we didn't expect to have as many amazing New Mexico people chime in, so we're very thankful for that. Um, And up next, we have Liz Rogan. Liz is a biodynamic biologist, botanist, and a cannabis health liaison, and our pinup girl. What do you have for us today, Liz? Good morning, everyone. Um, Thank you for joining us today. My story comes from Marijuana Moment. The headline reads, legalizing marijuana would help people get their mail delivered on time, Congressman says. Well, are you one of the many Americans that have noticed the significant delays in the mail delivery? Well, Representative Ed Perlmutter from Colorado says that legalizing cannabis will help remedy this problem. The Democratic representative from Colorado and sponsor of a bipartisan marijuana banking reform bill says he's getting complaints from constituents who aren't receiving their mail on time. Perlmutter says working shortages are one factor causing the problem because it excludes cannabis consumers from employment, saying you cannot be employed by the federal government, including the post office, if you have any kind of THC or cannabis in your system, noting that it can stay in your system up to 60 days. At House Rules Committee hearing on a postal service reform bill last week, he urged his colleagues to, quote, just kind of keep that in the back of the mind, adding that in Colorado and with the federal cannabis ban, can kind of cut the potential staffing numbers down. Jokingly mentioned that he could see a fellow committee member, Representative Mark uh, DeSolnier from California, smiling on camera during the discussion. Perlmutter asked DeSolnier if he would yield for any cannabis-related questions, and the congressman replied that as a farmer bartender in San Francisco in the 70s, he wouldn't. But after thanking the members for their work, he jokingly yielded, he would joked that he would yield back and says he's got a case of the munchies. All joking aside, losing a job due to a failed drug test is no laughing matter. And as more states come online with medical or recreational cannabis, these antiquated laws and strict drug testing policies for federal employment limit qualified applicants from applying for certain jobs, especially in the current job market with the great resignation and with emerging medical research showing how cannabis compounds may help protect against COVID-19 infection and lessen the long-term symptoms. An employer's anti-cannabis policy limits the applicant pool and may also cause the appearance of a political or social stance. There's been a lot of movement on the cannabis and employment front overall. Many states and jurisdictions are enacting protections for cannabis patients. Just yesterday, I reported on a story in New Hampshire where the New Hampshire Supreme Court ruled in favor of a medical cannabis patient who was terminated despite his request for a reasonable accommodation from his employer. Last month, I reported March, I reported on the director of national intelligence's recent memo that federal employees shouldn't outright reject security clearance, sorry, security clearance applicants over past cannabis use and suggested cannabis investments and stock portfolios are not a reason to automatically reject applicants. Last year, the FBI updated its hiring policies so candidates are only automatically disqualified from joining the agency if they can admit to if they admit to having used cannabis within the past year of application, normally it was three years, so that's a big change. And applicants are ineligible if they've used cannabis more than 24 times after turning 18. So I guess somebody's keeping count there. And many other agencies have made statements announcing their policy on cannabis and CBD. The Department of Defense says that military policies remain unchanged and is very clear in that such unlisted individuals cannot partake in CBD or any cannabis products. The Navy, Army, Air Force have all come out saying they have an overall zero-tolerance policy for CBD, citing the lack of FDA regulations. Even NASA made a statement urging caution about the lack of regulation on THC potency in CBD products. 
The Department of Transportation took a different approach, saying they test for marijuana, not CBD. While this might sound more permissive, remember, if the CBD product has any THC in it, you'll be terminated. So, yep, you're fired. This is not the first time this uh, idea has been proposed. In 2014, FBI Director James Comey suggested loosening employment policies on cannabis because potential skilled workers could be passed over for that requirement. Not all are in support of this. The DEA uh, continues to enforce its policy of automatically disqualifying applicants who've used cannabis in three years pre-application. And even the United States Postal Service got on the anti-cannabis bandwagon last year, releasing a final rule that asserted any device uh, shipped for cannabis or federally legal hemp derivatives like CBD can generally not be shipped through the United States mail. Well, this seems like an extra bumpy Mr. Toad's wild ride to deschedule or bust. We will continue to see if this issue being ra- is being raised for all employers, not just the federal government. Will they pivot to accommodate changing times, or are there many more potholes ahead as we continue to navigate through this sticky, icky landscape? So, will this work, Mr. Perlmutter? I like the thought process, but I think the logic of it actually happening for a reason like that is a bit far-fetched. Though I did hear a study about that was uh, focusing on feeding hemp to horses, and I'm wondering if this is where the saying high horse came from. I'm thinking maybe we should get Paul Revere back and see if we can get those horses fed some hot hemp and show Louis DeJoy how it's done. I would love to hear what you guys have to think. I'm Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Liz, when I was growing up, my dad was a postmaster. And um, it was a really, really good job. I mean, they they had it was very competitive. There would be two or three hundred people uh, lining up to try and get each job. So this is um, really strange to me. And also, I was wondering, you know, with how how lame people are about naming their cultivars, I'm surprised uh, there's not a cultivar called Going Postal. Oh gosh, but I mean, you get pissed. But every really cool. Uh, uh, post person that I've ever known actually, uh, consumed cannabis. I know there's got a, there's a drug test that they have to do it to get to that job, but all the really great post people I've ever met have been cannabis consumers. I love that Perlmutter is bringing this up. I mean, I like where you can infuse cannabis into any conversation on the Hill. These people need to see how it can affect every single part of your life to get them to move on some form of legalization. We need to have these discussions, and I know it may come across as a joke, and so they said something about the munchies. I don't give a fuck. I like that they're talking about it. I see what you did there, uh, Gretchen, with the infused conversations. Dad joke you slid in there. That's my lane. Stay out of it. But um, <laughs> no, seriously, though, um, I would like to have less of these weak-ass jokes and just push the shit forward. Like Whether you were for safe banking, against safe banking, like whatever, like, like Quit the fucking bullshit and quit quit the gridlocks, quit the, the, the positioning. People are actually hurting out here on these streets. Move the shit forward one way or the other so we know exactly what tomorrow looks like. This is what Perlmutter is trying to do. He's trying to push the conversation forward. Uh, I don't think you're going to find any stronger stronger advocate out there now for cannabis than Perlmutter. What about Pearl Father? Well, did you see those these male people working, you know, um, carrying all these bags and walking all the time on their bodies? And I'm thinking they definitely should be allowed to use CBD and other products like that for their health. Isn't the U.S. Post Office the biggest distributor of cannabis? That's actually FedEx. But, yeah, probably FedEx. DHL for all your global shipments to India. <laughs> Allegedly, Jason. Fuck. Allegedly. (laughs) 
Let's keep smoking the news. She's a pot-loving PhD pushing for common-sense cannabis policy for everyday people and outside-the-box activists remaining optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Up next, we've got Menika Mahajan. What you got for us this morning, Menika? Good morning. Thank you so much, Rico, for the wonderful introduction. I am talking about lobbying today, and my story comes from Graham Abbott of Gondrepreneur. The headline reads, Parallel CEO Apologizes and calls out corporate cannabis lobbying in open letter. On Tuesday, the CEO of cannabis multi-state operator Parallel published an open letter to the industry. Parallel holds licenses across multiple medical and adult use markets, including Florida under the Certera wellness brand, in Texas and Pennsylvania under the Good Blend brand, in Massachusetts as New England Treatment Access, and in Nevada through a joint venture with Cookies. So the statement takes responsibility and expresses regret for past lobbying and advocacy activities that failed to honor legacy operators whose decades of work made it even possible for newer entrants to the industry. It also recognizes that MSOs have not advocated for an industry structure that would allow for social equity, restorative justice, or a level playing field, and offers a commitment to doing better. Here's how the letter begins. If only we knew what we know now. When we started Parallel, then Certera in 2016, those of us jumping into the legal cannabis market for the first time made a number of mistakes. We did not take the time to honor the longtime cannabis producers and suppliers who laid the foundation for us to build our business. We did not follow the path laid, by, laid out by activists and advocates who fought for our right to participate in this industry legally. We did not understand the responsibility our industry had to use legal cannabis as a tool for restorative justice, including the scope of the opportunity for cannabis to be a true mechanism for social equity. And we did not advocate for an industry structure that would allow these opportunities to be realized in legal markets across the country. Hindsight is unfortunately 2020. End quote. Moving forward, Parallel pledges to be a model for all large operators in bridging business with social responsibility. And Mr. Whitcomb, the CEO of Parallel, James Whitcomb, said in a statement to Gondrepreneur, the big operators in our industry must stop pretending that the best way to grow a cannabis market and create opportunities for economic empowerment is by concentrating all the opportunity amongst a few large companies. It hasn't worked. We will no longer advocate for the exclusionary protectionist policies that have allowed MSOs to dominate legal cannabis markets, and we hope our fellow large cannabis companies will join us in advocating for the end of an industry structure that has largely blocked people of color from using cannabis as a pathway to economic empowerment. End quote. The letter also references the, the Minority Cannabis Business Association's recent report on inequities in the industry and quotes Amber Littlejohn, executive director of the MCBA. Amber said, I commend James in parallel. This isn't an MLK post on social media or even a single social equity investment. This is stepping up to lead and calling for systemic change to create real equity instead of playing kingmaker to a handful of businesses in an otherwise captured market. She goes on to say, markets captured by a few will never outcompete the legacy market that doesn't carry the extraordinary compliance costs of legal business. And she also kind of she also mentions that by by being truly committed to equity, there's nothing to fear in opening the industry to others. Actually, what MSOs would be doing is leveling the playing field. Listeners can read the full letter at the bottom of the Gontrepreneur story. Liz pinned the link above the stage, and it'll also go out in our newsletter later. We had hoped to have the CEO here with us today, but unfortunately, he couldn't make it. So I look forward to hearing what other correspondents have to say about this. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. 
I gotta say, I, I was pretty upset he didn't make it uh, this morning because I had I had quite a few questions for Same. him. Same, I had some questions as well. Yeah, specifically, yeah, specifically that uh, that one line he, where he said, "If we knew then in 2016 what we know now." motherfucker you knew from the beginning what the fuck you guys were doing <laughs> you knew exactly how this was gonna play out and it's all performative it's just a bunch i'm a hold i'm a hold i'm a hold back you know my emotion on this one but, but please 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 come on here because we want to talk about this shit if you want to have real conversations and not seem like you're just saying a bunch of shit just a bunch of lip service like come on and, and defend your words i smell placation placation is all that i smell couldn't make it or wouldn't make it. Yeah, his yeah. absence is as intentional as this performative letter and announcement where they have nothing to back it up. I'm seeing this ha- happen firsthand. You know, you see it in states where first money people were getting privileged license, building up ahead of steam, and as they come into California, flush with pockets from selling boof weed and being the only licensed providers, that's the only reason why people come to your store. You know nothing about cannabis. Coming in all cocky, looking to buy our brands after we put in work. They have no, it's, yeah, I, I can't. Like, it, yeah, I wish this person had been here so I could hear from yet another MSO stooge how they actually give a shit about us. And it's not about money. And it's not, like, they haven't done anything about their cannabis shame and are not really trying to grow this industry in a thoughtful manner. It's just about, oh, I have an opportunity to make money. I think these folks would let us be in jail tomorrow again. These are the same people that do not hire traditional legacy cannabis operators and employees because they think that they're unqualified. Like, come on. This is garbage. 100%. I didn't know what It's also the same people. It's also the same people that lobby against home grows for, for patients as well. These are the same people that also lobby against ha- p- people having the ability to have home grow also. So let's not forget about that either. Wow, fuck that. Creative competition, uh, competition that they think that somebody growing six plants at home is going to affect their business. If you grew quality products, made quality infused products, you wouldn't have to worry about somebody trying to replicate your shit. Right. I mean, in all honesty, Guy, they still don't have to worry about that with six plants. I mean, that's just utterly ridiculous. Yep. The tomato industry doesn't worry about how many people cultivate tomatoes on their front porch. Amen. That is my mantra. But we are at the half hour point, so we are going to relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. Want to learn how to generate high income in the explosive business of cannabis? Get all the details and winning strategies developed from 20 years in the game. This one-of-a-kind book is filled with dozens of personal business deals, insider stories, and invaluable lessons. The Business of Cannabis, a blueprint to high income by Jared Kesselman, finally reveals the elusive industry from the inside and teaches how you can make a fortune. Get it now on Amazon. Let's keep smoking the news. Well, up next, we have Miss Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen's the founder of Panoptic Strategies and also a Washington insider and never afraid to be the elephant in any cannabis room. 
What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Hello, Nicole. My uh, article today is coming from NutriIngredientsUSA.com. Um, and it is trade organizations welcome Califf appointment as FDA commissioner. Uh, Dr. Robert Califf has been confirmed as a new commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration in a tight 50 to 46 vote in the U.S. Senate. Dr. Califf led the agency from February 2016 to the end of the Obama administration after a year as the agency's deputy commissioner for medical products and tobacco. According to the FDA's website, he was succeeded as commissioner by Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Trade organizations active in the dietary supplement reacted positively to the news with a few caveats. Uh, Daniel Fabrican, PhD, president and CEO of the Natural Products Association, said the nomination comes as a critical juncture. He said, we look forward to engaging him for a speedy resolution on NAC, CBD, and ensuring the agency is using all the current tools at their disposal versus wasting the American taxpayer's time on asking for new authorities with no benefit to public health. Dr. Califf has previously stated that the agency has ample authority to regulate the dietary supplement marketplace. We look forward to working with him in that regard. We understand he's even used NAC in his medical practice. Steve Mister, the president and CEO of the Council for Responsible Nutrition, also congratulated Dr. Califf. He said Dr. Califf's confirmation comes at a pivotal time for this industry. Consumers are more proactive than ever about their health. Four out of five Americans use a dietary supplement, according to CRN's latest consumer survey. This industry needs a robust and responsive FDA that enforces the law, addresses safety concerns, and provides incentives for continued innovation and high-quality manufacturing. As Dr. Califf begins planning his agenda, we urge him to prioritize the following action items. I'm not going to go through all of them. My favorite is number three, establish a legal pathway to market the hemp derived cannabidiol as a dietary supplement. Uh, the article goes on and on with various uh, congratulations from the various uh, dietary supplement lobbies out there. Um, I hope that Dr. Califf is taking note of what they are saying. Many are pushing for CBD as a dietary supplement. It is currently uh, part of HR 841 from Representative Schrader on the Hill who is asking for uh, CBD to be considered a dietary supplement. And I hope that now this appointment, they have been without an FDA commissioner for over a year. Uh, I hope that the Food and Drug Administration will get off their dead asses and actually start regulating this industry, and especially on the hemp side, which has been struggling in the gray area, uh, gray market for so long. This Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. I think this may be the most progressive thing that the Biden administration has done in regards to cannabis. Dr. Califf is a prolific researcher and a cardiologist who's actually recommended medical cannabis to some of his patients. The immediate past FDA commissioner, Dr. Gottlieb, had strong ties to the pharmaceutical industry and sits on Pfizer's board of directors as we speak. Dr. Califf is a step in the right direction, in my humble opinion. That is so good to hear from you. Thank you, Dr. Felicia. Dr. Felicia, does he take his cues from Dr. Fauci? I'll simmer down there with the Trump bullshit, all right? Here, here we go. Here we go. Ooh, we got Republican infighting. Let them fight. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Go. <laughs> Dr. Felicia, I'm wondering, do you, do you agree? Do you think that CBD should be looked at as a dietary supplement? Or at least the FDA should start to care about this, uh, this issue? Yeah, I think, I think they can. They can, you know, maybe limit it to a, a certain number of uh, milligrams. Um, that's, you know, well below where there's any um, hepatic effect, like under 1,500, maybe it can be used as an herbal 
supplement. Yeah, I think you, so. You know, I, I'm sorry. I have to just push back on that. Any separation of CBD from all cannabis products continues this notion of shame, continues this notion that somehow psychoactivity doesn't apply to all analgesics, abuse is available to all analgesics. Cannabis works, as we all know, as a whole plant medicine with all cannabinoids working together to cause synergistic effects. Different ratios of cannabinoids help for different ailments and to separate CBD out puts a false fracture in our industry and will only lead to trouble. Uh, that's it's already fractured preach. out. It's already fractured out, though, y'all. It's already FDA-approved um, drug. Is, yeah, but only the one. O- only the one drug. Only the one, Epidiolex. Um, right, and I, so why should it be sitting there as a pharmaceutical when it could be available to a lot more people as a dietary yeah, supplement? And, and, and mean, Epidiolex, yeah, but no, Epidiolex wait, guys, is a Frankenstein of a, of a drug anyway. It's a massively powerful concentration of one single cannabinoid. It's not what naturally occurs in nature at all. It's not even close. Exactly. So that, that's CBD correct. as a and dietary look, supplement look, would be a benefit to people. Agreed, agreed. That, that is not accurate. That is I, not I, I, accurate, you guys. The, the gentleman who approved Epidiolex, Oren Davinsky, is on our scientific advisory board. High concentrations have already led to liver damage. That's what happens when you concentrate a single source active pharmaceutical ingredient that is not plant medicine and we need a whole lot more research as it relates to just cbd as a supplement yes it's cool to have safe access i'm doing it i'm trying to get cbd out there but we need to continue to push to have all cannabinoids regulated together so folks can get different ratios of different doses perhaps there'll be certain strengths that are over the counter certain strengths that are prescription but separating out cannabinoids is not really the right thing. And yes, somebody taking CBD only is better than nothing. But if we do that, we might end up dropping anchor and never having really holistic medicine available to everybody. That's well, what my, I'm trying to get well, across. Well, my, 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 my recommendation is always full spectrum CBD, not just CBD isolate by itself. So uh, if, you can, if we can get an herbal extract with a full spectrum, that's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about CBD isolate. I'm talking about full spectrum right, CBD. Right. So that is one a of the problems we have is just the nomenclature, don't you think? By calling it CBD oil when it's really broad spectrum, it gets confusing for people. That's correct. And a true full spectrum, like what I attempt to do, is constantly scrutinized because when you concentrate the oil, even from a legal CBD plant, it tends to pop hot. That's a work in progress. Then you have to dilute it down. Not most manufacturers do that. So most of the stuff we have is distillate because it's quote unquote more legal, right? Again, it's just we are playing into this division that has been put on us, right? We, when we look at the Canadian model where cannabinoids are regulated together, that is a better path forward for us. And taking something <clears throat> as a crumb first will just lead us to more fracturing. The current legislation does not turn this into isolate. Full spectrum is on the table. So I'm just looking for the FDA to actually fucking do their jobs and start to regulate the products that are out there so we are no longer uh, putting consumers at risk with bullshit that's being made in basements. People are not as conscientious as you are, Guy, and the FDA needs to step in and fucking do something. And we have to continue to educate that full spectrum is superior to isolates in general. I think we need to get a room on this, and I just want to say, leave my favorite side effect, euphoria, the fuck alone. But let's keep smoking the news. So he's the industry's longest continuously running retailer with two PhDs in bro science. 
if he ain't at Green Street getting deals done, you can probably find him in a mink coat on a private jet somewhere in the high, somewhere high above the clouds, staying hydrated by sipping on desalinated liberal tears. Pinkies up. Up next, Jason Beck. Oh, yeah. Good morning, Rico. Thank you so much for that introduction today. Today, my story comes out of San Francisco, where San Francisco supervisor questions police chief about reports of apathetic officers. San Francisco Supervisor Hillary Ronan is pressing for answers from Police Chief Bill Scott after a series of Chronicle reports questioned whether local police officers were doing enough to stop crimes. Ronan on Tuesday told her fellow supervisors that she was sending Scott a letter of inquiry in response to stories about his officers failing to stop alleged crimes in progress or property or properly investigate them after they had occurred. The supervisor cited three recent Chronicle stories, including a Saturday column that says San Francisco police had interrupted the vandalism of a financial district uh, parklet while it was happening, spoke with the suspect, and then left. The suspect allegedly continued damaging the parklet after the officers departed, causing tens of thousands of dollars in damages. Ronan also referenced the Chronicle stories about a tenderloin woman who said police did not investigate an assault. She reported an officers who appeared to watch as suspects burglarize a cannabis dispensary in a neighborhood north of the Panhandle. These accounts are deeply concerning and send a message to San Francisco residents that our officers are not doing all they can to investigate crime and prevent future harm. Ronan said in her letter to Scott, the stories indicate a systemic breakdown in your department. District Attorney Chelsea Bowden, a progressive prosecutor who was elected in part on a promise to hold police accountable for wrongdoing, faces a June 7th recall vote fueled by critics' concerns that, that uh, his policies have made the city less safe. But Bolden supporters strongly dispute that premise of the recall, and some accuse the police of not doing their jobs correctly. In Ronan's letter, she said she was concerned that a political divide between the San Francisco Police Department and Bolden's office could be causing a deliberate work stoppage from police officers. And in a quote, I can I can confidently say that that's not happening, Scott said. We just had a kidnapping over the week where officers worked around the clock to solve that case. If there were a work stoppage, you wouldn't see that type of effort, Ronan told Scott. And and uh, and in addition to that, she and her staff and, and witness police tell local residents that there is no point in investigating or arresting perpetrators of crime because the district attorney will not prosecute a statement that she called uh, patently false. Ronan also said Bolden's office had prosecuted about 67% of cases presented to him by the SFP. Absolutely unacceptable for police officers to, to just stop doing their jobs because they don't like the way another department is doing it, Ronan said in her letter. Well, I have to say this is, yes, there's a big disconnect between the district attorney's office and the San Francisco Police Department. When you have these uh, these progressive district attorneys that refuse to prosecute uh, prosecute criminals and just want to let them go, it definitely lowers the morale of law enforcement to be able to actually do their crime and stop crime in our streets and protect us all and keep us safe. And at the same time, I don't believe in the whole defund the police. I believe that what we need to do is we need to re-educate, retrain, and reevaluate because we do need to get rid of racist cops. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. <laughs> this is all kabuki theater. Uh, like straight up. And um, I think it's 
unfortunate about the messaging of defund the police because I actually do stand behind like the movement and the messaging. It is it is about like reeducating and reallocating those funds to where they're needed, and not so much about you know just take all the fucking money away and and, and take the and rip the rug up from underneath of them. So more bullshit from politicians. I have no idea where this is going to be headed. Exactly, Rico. And even when I was in the streets doing my thing, I understood that that law enforcement was a necessary evil. They had their job to do, and again, I had my job to do. It was my job to stay the hell away from them, and it was their job to try to catch me. So catch me if you can. All part of the game, baby. Kimo, did you want to weigh in? We've got Kimo up from the audience. Yes. Um, so I, I uh, ran a 215 dispensary in San Francisco, uh, as Jason did once upon a time. And uh, San Francisco uh, PD has never given a fuck about uh, cannabis dispensaries or businesses then or now. We used to employ SF Private Patrol, um, which most of you might uh, have seen depicted in the movie Cuffs before, which is a, a privatized police force, one of the oldest in the country. And we paid them about $1,700 a month, and they technically didn't even come on duty until the last two hours that we were open. Um, but uh, we did that because SFPD was uh, very, very little help with any uh, altercations or anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real shame. I really wish that they would clean up that city. I mean, L.A. has the same problem where we have this crazy progressive DA that won't prosecute crimes. And we need to get rid of these types of types of district attorneys and bring back people in that will actually prosecute crimes or prosecute criminals and do the right thing for citizens. Thank you so much for that headline, Jason. Uh, definitely something that we need to follow up on and definitely want to end a lot of those issues in San Francisco. Um, so up next, we have Christopher Smith. Christopher Smith is the communications strategist and the publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Our very own Clark Kent. What do you have for us today, Superman? Excellent. Doing a bunch of things. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Rico and Nicole here in L.A. We're all coming down from our little weekend hoo-ha where we had we won our second Lombardi trophy to add to our two Stanley Cups, seven World Series trophies, and 17 NBA championships. It's good to be king. That's quite a legacy for the City of Angels going back to 1949, although that was the Minneapolis Lakers who won that first NBA trophy. But 1949, massive year in world history. But in L.A., our legacy industry put James Cagney in a little gangster picture called White Heat. Cagney was not a prohibition-busting bootlegger in the film. He played a hyper-violent psychopath named Cody Jarrett who gets killed at the end. He shouts, "Made, made it, ma, made it, ma, top of the world. So top of the world, Ma, legacy, prohibition, gangsters, violence, the four horsemen of the apocalypse when government tries to prohibit something the people want. And I'll say it again, the only legacy of prohibition is gangsters and violence. And when some of the gangsters are inevitably psychos, top of the world, Ma, the violence spills all over the place, which is how I interpreted this story from Friday's, last Friday's news. Remember, it's two days before the Super Bowl. A threatening phone call to a U.S. inspector endangers the Mexican avocado industry. So exploding gang violence, gun battles, bombs dropped from drones, and forced displacement of thousands of people, none of it has dampened the U.S. appetite for avocados for Mexico's western state of Michoacan. But a threatening phone call made to an American avocado inspector could change that. U.S. authorities informed Mexico that we would temporarily suspend avocado shipments until the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services could investigate the threat and guarantee the safety of American inspectors. So you're wondering how all this ties together. It's because the production of avocados in Michoacan, which while it has lifted thousands out of poverty, it's also fed the coffers of organized crime, which often charges a tax on every kilo sold. 
Machokan has become the battleground for a bitter, a bitter fight for control between the Jalisco New Generation Cartel and the United Cartels. Criminal groups are seeking to control the avocado market outright as a means to finance their operations. So they've already disrupted Machokan's lime industry. They've raised prices 90% since 2020, but avocados are really big bucks. Nearly a million tons of avocado valued at $2.4 billion are exported to the U.S. annually, virtually all of it from this little state of Michoacan, giving the industry the nickname Green Gold. Get it? Green Gold? Okay. And the U.S. suspended imports on February 12th, right before the biggest avocado day of the year, the Super Bowl. Did we get hurt? Hardly. But the people of Michoacan, exploding gang violence, gun battles, bombs dropped from drones, that proves that the only legacy of prohibition is gangsters and violence. End prohibition now. I actually think this is super interesting. Um, I, Michoacan is a, a, a beautiful place, but I've been actually kind of following this a little bit closely. I had a, a personal interaction with the limes uh, some years back, and realizing the lime prices having changed so much because the cartels have actually shifted a big part of um, their agriculture to limes and avocados. So I'm super interested to see how this actually shakes out. And I, I'm, I mean, I can't quite uh, imagine... Uh, what our our uh, I don't even know what the right word our crunchy granola people are going to do without all of these avocados that we're importing um, in 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 real life. I wonder what the um, what the cartel and uh, what they think and what their thoughts are on uh, social equity and how it should be implemented across across. Wait, the what? <laughs> we need to hold these cartels accountable. I, what? <laughs> I mean, can't have any performative yeah. cartels. No cartel, cartel kabuki. <laughs> no cartel kabuki. I, mean, I, I would think I, I would think it would be something that the cartels would support because it's something they could totally exploit. If cars can't talk, then how can cars tell? Side note, did you see the avocados that were imported with cocaine inside of them? There was a story about that a couple weeks ago, which I thought. I did see that. Yeah. I did see that. First, first they came for our margaritas, then our guacamole. What's next? What's next? They took our taxes. All right. So uh, up next, this OG dope dad is known and respected across the industry as an avid defender of cannabis culture and perpetual bridger of gaps. The co-founder and newly appointed CEO of Papa and Barkley is up next. What you got for us today, Giro Court. Awesome. Good morning, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. Nicole, thanks for that great introduction. Yeah, today my article's a little bit, you know, I wish I could say it's fun, but it's always just, you know, same craziness. This one's coming out of England on the food safety news, and it's about edibles and it's about kids. You all already know. So the title uh, reads, Illegal Cannabis Edibles Trend in UK Concerning, says C-I-E-H. Concerns have been raised about the illegal sales of cannabis edibles online in the United Kingdom. So it seems that most of these edibles are being sold via social media platforms like TikTok and the Facebook Marketplace and Snapchat, letting few people know, I guess, where they can meet up and whatnot. Of course, they have uh, THC and they're like jelly sweets, gummies, your, you know, your local fare. Uh, the Food Safety Authority of Ireland, FSAI, previously urged people be vigilant about the dangers of cons children consuming cannabis edibles. In Ireland, at least six children under the age of 10 were hospitalized in 2021, and there have been numerous reports 
of young people being ill in the UK. I should always stop there because I find that whenever folks talk about children, it's like a total fear thing. And we never get the context of how many of those kids are exposed to other things in the home, like alcohol, opiates, cigarettes, and whatnot. But cannabis is often singled out. And one kid is concerning. 10 is definitely concerning. It's not that we're not concerned. It's just what does that mean in the larger scale? I think that people, when they're reporting on cannabis, should be doing that. But you can see the bias. The food standards in Scotland, FSS, Police Scotland and Public Health Scotland voice concerns about production and online marketing of cannabis edibles by organized groups. One way to get rid of organized groups is regulate, legalize, and make it safe. So you guys, when you, if you look at this article, it really reminds me of Los Angeles almost 20 years ago when we were taking common branding like Jolly Ranchers and, and Nestle and these kinds of things and making edibles with them and selling them in dispensaries. That's what's happening here. A bunch of look lookalike packaging, which is dangerous, right? Because lookalike packaging can get confused by not only adults, but by kids. But it is a clear function of the illicit market. The only answer to stop this people in the UK and Ireland is to regulate cannabis and stop shaming it and pushing it underground because people are willing to buy it even when it's illegal, even when it's untested, even when it's clearly irresponsible in its packaging. The only way to stem it is regulation. So the article goes on to cite a few other things that are, yeah, mostly like it's public health issue if you don't know that cannabis sweets are clearly appealed to children, but we don't know how much cannabis is in the sweets. Well, you would know if you got it tested and you had a regulated market. So anyway, not a whole lot of substance in this article, just a lot of like, oh, well, we're concerned the kids are getting edibles, but we're not doing anything about it. And we're not taking uh, the issue into our own hands by actually regulating cannabis like the rest of the world is moving towards. That's my feelings on this article. I encourage folks to read it, if anything, just to look at the fancy packaging that they're developing in the UK for uh, these illegal edibles. This is Guy Roquart reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That package has a California symbol on it. Uh, the one that I was on that uh, the article that I saw yeah. earlier. You know, you're you're absolutely right. When I was in New York last week, you know, for those of you if you're in NYC, apparently you can go into most head shops. A friend told me to do this and just present cash and ask for what they have. And they have a lot of products that are were clearly knockoff, like they weren't fully compliant, but they have the symbol as if they were purchased in in, in California. It was kind of crazy to see. So if you go to Alibaba and you type in California cannabis packaging right now, there's about twenty five. Hundred options on the Alibaba website, BH <laughs> Gate, um, and so these are just being sold, um, shipped right out of China or you know maybe other places, um, just right off the fucking website. And you could literally type in that sentence and find twenty five hundred different options, which is fucking insane. Counterfeiters have gotten quite good at um, tricking the public with their products. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, the real public safety thing has always been the obvious: do your job regulate cannabis. Most countries, and I'm sure the UK, the will of the people is they are ready to regulate cannabis. Do your jobs, please. Uh, let's, let's, give, let's keep smoking the news. We've got, got to give Brandon enough time for his headline. And up next, we have Brandon Dorsky, CEO at Fruit Slabs and a cannabis and intellectual property attorney. What do you have for us today, Brandon? Today, my headline is Ascend accuses MedMen of false claims in latest filing as reported by Law360, as well as Cannabis Company Throws New Accusations Over Scuttled Deal, as reported by the Times Union. And it's about the Ascend and MedMen fight going down in New York, 
where Ascend Wellness Holdings, Inc. filed an amended complaint on Monday night alongside a motion to dismiss counterclaims from MedMen. The filing characterizes MedMen as a deceitful potential business partner that sought to eke out of a $73 million deal after accepting a little less than $9 million from Ascend during a financially troubling period. Side note, I think MedMen is forever in a financially troubling period. The amended complaint states MedMen is a broken and mismanaged cannabis company that has repeatedly reneged on its promises to its employees, suppliers, shareholders, medical marijuana patients, regulators, and now Ascend. At the core of this dispute is one of 2021's largest cannabis transactions, where Ascend acquired a majority stake in MedMen's New York operations. The terms of the deal provided that they had until the end of 2021 to obtain regulators' approval for the transfer of the stake to Ascend. Over the course of the year, Ascend transferred $8.5 million in cash payments to MedMen because, quote, its incompetent and unethical leadership had driven the company to the brink of insolvency. New York State had only issued 10 licenses for vertically integrated medical cannabis businesses, and the values of those licenses soared after New York approved adult use marijuana, and it has become known that the medical license holders will likely have a first mover advantage on entering New York's adult use market. After Ascend sued MedMen to force the deal to go through, MedMen counterclaimed, alleging that conversations between Ascend CEO and newly elected governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, and her staff were improper. The case has been full of mudslinging on both sides, and this amended complaint is just the latest counterpunch from Ascend in response to last week's subpoenas sought by MedMen, which were requiring the state's cannabis regulators, the governor, and the New York Department of Health to produce documents in connection with the dispute. Ascend claims the document requests are predicated on a fiction and has suggested the public officials who were at the claim meetings weren't even in the state of New York on the dates in question. Ascend has accused MedMen of having seller's remorse and attempting to, quote, strike a better deal with a new buyer. MedMen's attorney, when reached out for comment, said, quote, we will see everyone in court. So please stay tuned because there's definitely going to be more for, to report. And this is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Mad Men. So spicy. Yeah, you know, it's it's really a sad thing because in California as a retailer, you know, they have really had that first conversation and driven a lot of newbies in because of the aesthetic of the store and all this bad stuff that, you know, the public doesn't see is really sad because as a store and the way it's branded, it has, I think, helped grow the industry. Like the concept of MedMen had some positive impact, but this infighting, cannabis companies shouldn't be in court, you guys. We have to stay together and fight the real fight. But, you know, I think MedMen is caught up with all those nefarious MSO type money people anyway. Thank you for the comment, Guy, and thank you for the headline, Brandon. We've reached the end of the show. It was a really good one. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all of the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye now. Goodbye.